Good afternoon, everyone. This is the DOLW3 podcast. Uh, We are a group of watchers in the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan, and we have been reading a letter to a suffering church. A bishop speaks on the sexual abuse crisis by Bishop Robert Barron. And um, we're going to begin today on the chapter that's why should we stay in the church? Why should we stay? And uh, page 57, we're going to jump right in and begin today. Before we do, though, I'd like to say a little prayer. Lord, let your splendor rest upon us today and direct the work of our hands. Let our work always find its origin in you and through you reach completion. Um, That was a prayer in the Liturgy of the Word. And uh, let's begin this chapter with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, page 57. In the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, there is a scene of absolutely pivotal importance. Finding the Lord's words concerning the Eucharist simply too much to take, the majority of Jesus' followers abandoned him. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Turning to his inner circle, the tiny band of his most ardent apostles, Jesus said, simply and plaintively, Do you also wish to go away? The entire future of of the Christian movement was hanging in the balance as Jesus awaited an answer. Finally, Peter spoke, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's John 6, chapters 66 through 68. Now, to be sure, the context today is different, but the fundamental principle remains the same. If you have found in Jesus everlasting life, salvation, and the answer to the deepest longing of your heart, then no matter how difficult things become, and no matter how many of your fellows might drift away, you must stay. As we saw, Paul spoke of the treasure in earthen vessels. I don't think anyone who has read read to this point could doubt that I have taken fully into consideration just how fragile and compromised the vessels are and have been. If we look around at the situation today, we see it. If we look back to the scriptures, it is evident. If we survey the 20 centuries of church history, we cannot miss it. Yet the treasure remains, and we stay because of the treasure. In the 4th century, St. Augustine did battle with the Donatists. These were Christians who claimed that priests and bishops who had deserted the church during times of persecution and subsequently returned were not worthy to administer the sacraments, sensing that the integrity of the church itself was in question. Augustine raised his voice in eloquent protest, arguing that the sacraments remained valid despite the unworthiness of those at whose hands they were offered. Okay, so now we are on the pa- on page 59 um, at the top. This great teacher of the church did not deny for a moment the seriousness of the moral offense in question. But he insisted that despite the sin of the ministers, the grace that they mediate remains. The grace that they mediate remains. In the course of this brief chapter, I would like to present the treasure 
which is the life of Christ available in and through the church. This will quite obviously not be a detailed theological treatise, but rather a hymn, a poem, a celebration. We do indeed have to look hard at the wickedness in the church today. But we also have to be clear-eyed about the beauty and the veracity and holiness and offer in that same church. The vessels are all fragile, and many of them are downright broken. But we don't sit, stay because of the vessels. We stay because of the treasure. Before getting to the substance of this chapter, let me make one more rather blunt remark. There is simply never a good reason to leave the church. Never. Good reasons to criticize church people. We're going to page 60. Plenty legitimate reasons to be angry with corruption, stupidity, careerism, cruelty, greed, and sexual misconduct on the part of leaders of the church. You bet. But grounds for turning away from the grace of Christ in which eternal life is found? No, never under any circumstances. The first dimension of the treasure I would like to present to is this. The church speaks of God. It should come as a, as a surprise to no one that we live in a time, at least in the West, when secularism is dramatically on the rise. For the first time in recorded cultural history, large swaths of the population are explicitly or implicitly denying the existence of God and pretending that fulfillment can be had through the goods and experiences of this world. As recently as 50 years ago, practically nobody, even in the Western countries, would have believed this. But now armies of people, especially the young, take it for granted. And this indifference is doing irreparable damage for, as St. Augustine reminded us long ago, our hearts are wired for God and therefore will remain restless until they rest in God. I'm going to get a little drink here. The best proof of this is that nothing in the world, no amount of money, sex, pleasure, power, or esteem, perfectly quiets the longing of the soul. And as C.S. Lewis insisted, we know this truth most painfully precisely at the best moments of life. When we have realized our fondest worldly dreams and yet remain dissatisfied, St. John of the Cross compared the unconditioned desire of the heart to infinitely deep caverns, no amount of finite goods hurled into those abysses will ever fill them up. It is, as the psalmist sang, only in the infinite God that our souls find rest. Certainly one of the reasons for the chronic depression that seems to bedevil so many people today is this loss of a transcendent point of reference. The philosopher Charles Taylor speaks of the buffered self, which is to say the self that is hemmed in, divorced from any contact with what goes beyond this world. Living in that cramped space is simply deadly for the human soul. It is akin to forcing an eagle to occupy a tiny cage. The church, despite 
Its many failings speaks of God, of the transcendent mystery of which corresponds to the most ardent desire of the heart, of the ultimate reality and this word, especially today is like water in the desert. To Catholic parents, legitimately worried about their sons and daughters, compelled to soak in the acids of secularism and materialism, I say, don't abandon the church, which is one of the few remaining institutions in our society that will speak to your children of God. In both the high and the popular culture, secularist ideologies increasingly holds sway and in universities on an, an aggressive atheism is typically, typically the default position. Stay with the church because at its best, it's properly orient, it properly orients the hungry heart. We are on page 62, by the way. A second aspect of the treasure. The church is the mystical body of Christ. According to the ancient faith, Jesus is not one more prophet among many, not simply a spokesperson for God. Rather, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. In him, two natures, divine and human, come together. Though this latter formula can sound rather abstract, it is conveying a fundamental and existentially compelling truth, existentially compelling truth, namely that in Jesus divinity and humanity meet. In other words, what the heart aches for, real union with God, is realized personally and completely in him. What Israel of the Old Testament gestured toward through the holy temple, through the preaching of the prophets, through law and covenant, real reconciliation with God is in Jesus, an established fact. He is the faithful God, finally and utterly meeting faithful Israel, and hence he is the Savior of the human race. That English word Savior is derived from the Latin term salvus, meaning health. Through Jesus, perfect humanity, God salves or heals a broken humanity and how wonderfully this is exemplified in Jesus Jesus's mighty acts of restoring sight to the blind bearing or hearing to the deaf mobility to the crippled and life to the dead and Jesus teaches not simply as one wise person among many but as this divine truth manifesting itself in human words and in a human voice hence Upon hearing him, the cloud of our minds, which is itself an effect of sin, is overcome. Our habits, instincts, and manner of seeing, which flows from selfishness, are transformed in, this, in his inaugural address in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says simply enough, metanonite, which is usually rendered as repent. That's from Mark 1 chapter 1 verse 15 and we are on page 64 but the word literally means go beyond the mind you have and saint paul urges the earliest christians 
let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. That's Philippians uh, second chapter verse five, like sheep and res- like sheep that respond eagerly to the voice of the shepherd. So men and women up and down the ages have responded to the voice of Jesus, the preacher. In many iconic representations of the Last Supper, St. John, the beloved disciple, is pictured leaning on the breast of Jesus in such a way that his head is aligned just below the Master's head. The point is that he sees the world from the same angle as the Lord. He has the mind of Christ, for he has spent so many years listening to Jesus. At the climax of his life, Jesus died on a Roman cross, an exquisitely designed instrument of torture. What brought him to such an end? We have to understand that Jesus is consistently presented in the Gospels as a warrior and a king. We're now at the top of page 65. From the first moments of his life, he is opposed, for we hear that Herod tries to wipe him out of all Jerusalem, trembles in fear of him. From the beginning of his public ministry, his enemies come out to meet him. The demons who scream their recognition of him, the scribes and the Pharisees, the official keepers of the religious establishment who conspire to humiliate him and then to kill him, the ordinary people who call him mad, a drunkard, a troublemaker, but he fights, not with weapons of the world or by employing the strategies of worldly rulers, but rather with compassion, forgiveness, nonviolence, the characteristic moves and attitudes of what he calls the kingdom of God, God's way of ordering things. As was inevitable, the struggle between the kingdom of God and what John's gospel calls the world came to climax. Just a week before his death, Jesus entered Jerusalem in the manner of a king, as the prophet Zechariah had said he would, and he was hailed by adoring crowns. We're going to go on page 66 now. But when he caused a ruckus in the temple, calling down judgment upon the holiest place in Israel, he stirred the ferocious opposition of both the Jewish and the Roman establishments, the former accusing him of blasphemy and the latter of sedition. On the way to his death, he was met by stupidity, institutional injustice, hatred, cruelty, betrayal, denial, scapegoating, and shocking violence by all of the darkness of the fallen world hanging from the cross in literally excruciating and then he's got a parens there and it says excruciate from the cross pain abandoned by his friends at the limit of physical and psychological agony he cried out my god my god why have you abandoned me that's matthew 27 verse 46 the still dizzying claim of Christianity is that we are meant to see in that figure not only an unjustly accused man, not simply a heroic martyr, but God himself, having gone to the limits of God-forsakenness. 
and in that heart of darkness he uttered the prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. What this signaled and was what this signaled was the swallowing up of all the world's negativity in the ever greater divine mercy, the breaking of the power of sin. We are at the top of page 67. But what gives us the confidence to say that this story is more than a hero's tale with a tragic ending? It was what happened on the third day following the terrible execution. Coming to the tomb early on Sunday morning, a number of his disciples found the body of their Lord missing. While they were still wondering what this absent meant, they saw him. I'm going to take a drink. Not a ghost, not a fantasy, but him. The same Jesus whom they knew, with whom they had eaten and drunk, who had beguiled them with his preaching and healed them of their illnesses, who had walked the roads of Galilee and Judea with them, that Jesus was alive, presenting himself to them. Many people of that time formed in that Greek philosophical tradition might have believed in the immorality of the soul. But the first Christians were not talking about Jesus' soul having gone to heaven. Many Jews of that time believed that the dead would be physically raised at the end of time. But the first Christians weren't talking about a general resurrection at, at the close of the age. We are going to the top of page 68. They were describing the bodily resurrection and glorious fiction in time of their friend and Lord. I'm sorry, the glorious vacation in time of their friend and Lord. And this meant, in a word, that everything had changed. The old world was broken because now the, they knew that God's love is more powerful than hatred, cruelty, injustice, and violence. Even more wonderfully and unnervingly, they realized that death itself was overcome. That which had always hung as a dark cloud over the whole human life, that which had haunted the human race from the beginning, that which had been used by every tyrant in history to intimidate and manipulate his subjects, was now a defeated enemy. And this explains their strange relationship to the cross of Jesus. A Roman cross was meant to terrify people into submission. Run afoul of us, the Roman political leadership said, and we will hang you naked on a device that will guarantee a slow, painful, and deeply humil humiliating death. It is no accident whatsoever that the authorities would place crosses in, er in very public locations, for they were meant to be seen. If anything symbolized the terror, cruelty, and violence of the corrupt world, it was this awful thing. But the first Christians, in a manner that must have struck their listeners as bordering on insanity, held up the cross, spoke of it, celebrated it. Who can forget St. Paul's strange claim? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 
second chapter, second verse. This would be roughly akin to someone today announcing that the single theme of, the, of his proclamation would be a criminal executed by lethal injection. They could do this only because they were utterly convinced that the resurrection had disempowered the cross and all that it entailed and the twisted world that made it possible. If I dare to put it this way, they held it up as a kind of taunt. You think this frightens us? God is more powerful. Much of this was summed up in a phrase that was frequently on the lips and under the pen of St. Paul. Jesus Christ is Lord. The, um, that was from Philippians 2, uh, verse 11. In the culture of that time and place, Caesar was considered the Lord, which is to say the one to whom final allegiance was due. We are now at the bottom of page 69, going to page 70. But the first followers of the risen Jesus knew that the resurrection had undermined the supremacy of Caesar and all his colleagues and imitators up and down the ages. Now, the one to whom ultimate allegiance is due is Jesus, whom Caesar killed, but whom God raised up. No wonder that in Matthew's telling the death of Jesus was accompanied by an earthquake, for indeed the cross of Christ represented the shaking of the old order. And what, del what delicious irony in John's telling that Pontius Pilate, Caesar's local representative in Palestine, could never or could put over the cross of the Lord. What? was meant to be a bit of mockery, but was in fact a frank declaration. Jesus of Nazareth is the King of the Jews. I'm just going to pause here for a minute. That was from John 19 and verse 19. But I was just thinking, um, this is this is the last week uh, for the uh, liturgical year for Catholics. And on this past Sunday, we celebrate this week uh, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. Just let that sink in, and I think it's pretty cool that we're reading this today. Okay, during this week. And also Catholics begin, Advent begins um, in that preparatory time um, where we prepare for the uh, baby Jesus to be born on Christmas. All right, so we're at uh, almost done with page 70. I mentioned just a few paragraphs above that the church is called the mystical body of Christ. The characterization implies that the church is not the Jesus Christ society, a gathering of like-minded people who fondly remember the life and works of a distant historical figure like the International Churchill Society. It is an organism, not an organization. Those who have been grafted onto Jesus Christ are the eyes, ears, hands, feet, and heart through which Jesus continues his properly subversive and recreated work in the world. Page 71. And this brings us to a third aspect of the treasure, the Holy Spirit. The first followers of the risen Christ felt that they had been inhabited by the spirit of their Lord. 
which lifted them up, gave them courage, breathed through their words and actions. In the Acts of the Apostles, we hear the Spirit was sent, in t sent to the church by the ascended Jesus. We must never think of the ascension as Jesus' leave-taking, but rather his assuming in the manner of a general commanding a field of battle, a vantage point from which he directs the operations of the church. It is this, this same Holy Spirit who throughout the history of the Catholic Church to the present moment gives vitality and energy to the mystical body. And now that we've spoken of the Holy Spirit, we are ready to present a fourth dominion, dimension of the treasure, the strange doctrine of the Trinity, which presents the one God as a unity of three persons. We are going to page 72. I realize that this sort of language can seem either hopelessly abstract or just incoherent but it actually speaks a truth that is of central and saving significance. The Father sent his only Son into the world, all the way to the limits of the God-forsakenness, and then, in the Holy Spirit, he drew the Son back to himself. But on the return journey, the Son carried with him, at least in principle, all those he had reached through his descent. We are saved precisely because God opened himself up in a great act of love, the Father and the Son gathering us into the Holy Spirit. This outward manifestation of God's love reflects the church teaches and even more primordial set of relationships within God's own inner life. From all eternity, the Father speaks the Son, who is a who is a perfect image of the Father. The Son and the Father look at one another, and they fall in love. The love that they breathe, breathe back and forth is the Spiritus Sanctus, literally the holy breath. Therefore, as G.K. Chesterton observed, the Trinity doctrine is simply a technically precise way of saying that God is love. We're going to the top of page 73. In his, very, in his very unity, there is a play between lover, the father, beloved, the son, and the love they share, the Holy Spirit. Almost every religion and every religious philosophy would defend the proposition that God loves or that love is one of God's attributes, but only Christianity makes the odd claim that love is what God is. The church bears this truth to the world. What is ultimately real is love. I cannot imagine a more indispensable message, especially now. The Christ life that we have been describing comes into us. The church teaches through the sacraments, and this brings me to the fifth feature of the treasure. Baptism, Confirmation, and the Eucharist initiate us into the life. Marriage and holy orders give that life missionary direction. Confession and the anointing of the sick restore the life when it has been lost. 
as, a necess as necessary as food and drink are to the body, so are the sacraments for the health of the soul. Now, Thomas Aquinas said that through all the sacraments, though all the sacraments contain the power of Jesus, only the Eucharist contains Jesus himself. When we consume the e Eucharist, we are taking the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity into ourselves, becoming therefore conformed to him in the most literal sense. We're at the top of page 74. Through this grace sacrament, we are Christified, eternalized, deified, made ready for life on high with God. And as we saw earlier, St. Augustine clarified that the validity of the Eucharist is in no way compromised by the immorality of the priest involved in its consecration. Therefore, let me state it bluntly, the Eucharist is the single most important reasons for staying faithful to the church. You can't find it anywhere else, and no wickedness on the part of priests or bishop, bishops can affect it. Those who have put on Jesus Christ, who have been divinized through the sacraments, who have the Holy Spirit in them, who have become conformed radically to the Trinitarian love, are called saints. The entire purpose of the church is to produce them, and they are a sixth dimension of the treasure. Even as we look around and see sickening corruption in the church today, and even as we look back at a myriad of examples of immorality, we're at the top of page 75. Immorality. On the part of ecclesial leaders, we must never overlook the saints who are present in every age and are operative in the world now. They are the lights shining in the gloom. Yeah, I want to stop here real quick and just make a, just a short remark. Uh, I got to get a drink. The remark is, the one thing that we as Catholics are charged um, by the church, the church documents, is that we are each supposed to practice personal sanctification, meaning that we are always, always, always to grow in holiness. And we do that through prayer, through receiving the sacraments, um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the ways to do that, you know, God will lead you. You know, taking that silent, quiet time with your best friend, Jesus, and um, always practicing growing in holiness. Okay, we're at the top of page 75. We remember St. Paul who careened, who careered around the world to announce the kingship of Jesus and who wrote of his Lord in words of surpassing eloquence. We think of Saints Polycarp, Sebastian, Felicity, Perpetua, Lucy, and Agnes, all of whom witnessed to Christ their lives with their lives. We recall St. Francis, the troubadour of Lady Poverty, who revolutionized mid medieval Europe by his reckless abandon to God's providence. We ruminate on St. Catherine of Siena, who looked with mystical vision into heaven and tended the wounds of the poorest here on earth. We celebrate St. Francis Xavier, who crossed oceans to proclaim the gospel to those who had never heard of Christ. We think of St. Francis de Sales, 
who showed how the most ordinary things of life can be sanctified. We reverence St. Peter Claver, whose service to African captives coming to the New World was so devoted that he was called the slave of slaves. We're at the bottom of page 76, and we're only going to go to page 78, so hang in there with me. I thought this was an important chapter to read all the way through. So, okay. We hold up St. Damien of Molokai, who volunteered to care for lepers in Hawaii, knowing that he would never leave their island enclave alive. We consider St. Teresa of Calcutta, who quit her ministry at a relatively prosperous school and walked into the worst slum in the world in order to help the poorest of the poor. And we remember Pope St. John Paul II, who as a young man survived the outrages of both Nazism and communism, and who as a pope brought down a wicked political system, not by leading armies, but by unleashing the power of the gospel. Among the saints, we find the brilliant Thomas Aquinas and the scholastically challenged John Vianney, the wealthy Thomas More, and the abjectly poor Benedict Joseph Lebrer, the warrior of Jonah Ark and the pacifist Nerus and Achilles, the mystic John of the Cross, and the social activist Oscar Romero, King Louis IX, and the humble porter Andre Bassett, John Henry Newman, who lived to be 90, and Dom Dominic Savio, who died as a boy, Therese of Lisieux, who spent her entire religious life in a tiny convent in an obscure town, and Francis Xavier Cabrini, who crossed oceans and continents, Ignatius of Lo Loyola, who walked only with difficulty, and Pierre G Giorgio Frassati, who loved to climb mountains, the point is that each of the saints in his or, own, his or her own utterly unique manner shows forth some aspect of God's beauty and perfection. <coughs> no one saint could ever exhaustively express the infinite holiness of God, and therefore God makes saints the way he makes plants and animals and stars, exuberantly, effervescently, and with a preference for wild diversity. The one thing, of course, that all saints have in common is they are friends of Christ. And this is why we, who are striving to deepen our friendship with the Lord, find such powerful fellowship with them. Though we are separated from the saints by culture, personality, and in some case, oceans of time, we are joined to them because we share a best friend. This is a crucial reason why we stay connected to the church. Though there are God knows lots of people, lots and lots of people, even among us. We're going to page 78. So let's see. Though there are God knows lots and lots of people, even among the top leadership of the church who fall far short of holiness, the saints remain as beacons, models, companions on the way. Just a week or so before I composed these words, a national poll showed that in the wake of the scandals, 37% of Catholics are seriously considering leaving the church. I understand the frustration and the rage that lie behind 
the consideration. But I also hope that this particular chapter was made clear that I don't think such a move is warranted. In the end, we are not Catholics because our leaders are flawless, but because we find the claims of Catholicism both compelling and beautiful. We are Catholics because the Church speaks of the Trinitarian God, whose very nature is love, of Jesus the Lord crucified, and the risen from the dead, and risen from the dead, of the Holy Spirit, who inspires the followers of Christ up and down the ages, of the sacraments which convey the Christ life to us, and of the saints who are our friends in the spiritual order. This is the treasure. And this is why we stay. Okay, we're going to end here. I'm not going to really make any comments. I think this this is real explanatory. But um, and we, we've been reading for 36 minutes, so I'm going to say a prayer for the um, for the non-practicing Catholics and for all of those Christians out there who are non-practicing. Okay, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, Good Shepherd, you never cease to seek out the lost, to call home the stray to comfort the frightened, and to bind up the wounded. I ask you to bring all our fallen away brothers and sisters back to the practice of the faith, and to remove all obstacles that prevent them from receiving your abundant mercy, which flows sacramentally through the heart of your holy church. Through the intercession of Mary, the Mother of God, their guardian angels, their patron saints, and the ever-prayerful Saint Monica, may you pardon their sins and unshackle them from whatever hinders their freedom to come home. For you, O Good Shepherd, have loved us to the end and offered yourself to the Father for the salvation of all. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Until next time. Bye-bye, and God bless you.